Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. It's half an hour on your radio where we talk about all things science. My name is Stu and the science I'm going to be talking about this week is climate science. Woohoo! We haven't talked about climate science in a while. No, well, yeah, there's a new paper has come out, which is a collaboration between about 30 scientists from all over the world. Great. Not looking forward, but actually looking back in history at different times when the climate has been a lot warmer and what that might actually do to the earth in the future. Like recent history or we're talking... Some, some recent history, some only, you know, sort of... A few thousand years ago, back to a few million years ago. Right. Claire, what are you going to tell us about? Well, I am, um, I, I've been thinking recently, um, and this thought occurs to me often when I see the moon, I think, why, why haven't we gone back to the moon um, in the last 40 or so years? Why, why is that? What is going on there? Is it something to do with the science and technology or um, do, have we found out everything we know about the moon? Or is there something, something Or did they, like, the aliens who live on the moon told us not to come back and the government's keeping it a secret? Yeah, or, exactly. Or there's a giant transformer robot crashed on the other side of it or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of those Or things. the moon's actually hollow. If you go there, you'll fall through. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I see I'm not the only one with these thoughts. So I, um, I'm just going to talk a little bit about why we aren't visiting the moon and what is um, uh, what the future of moon visitations look like cool and chris well thank you Stu. i'm putting the lie to your um, introduction saying how we're going to talk about all kinds of science because i'm also talking about space so my count we've covered about two kinds of science tonight <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know i mean it comes and it goes sometimes yeah. we'll talk about all medicine sometimes we'll talk about different things so hang on i'm also talking about space so we're only really talking about two kinds of science today Yes, very good. Yeah. Um, yes, but I am also talking about space. I am talking about a recent observation of a exoplanet. Big deal, you might say, but this one you might have seen in the news. It's like in the process of being formed. It was like a, a very young exoplanet in its protoplanetary disk. You know, So we can see a planet in the process of being formed. So I'm going to talk about that, how it was seen, and, and what it all means. Is seeing a planet in its proto What's it called? The protoplanetary disk. The protoplanetary disk. Is yep. that sort of like um, like seeing an ultrasound of a unborn child? No, because this planet is born. Right, okay. It's it's there. Right. So yeah. what's this protoplanetary disk It's then? the rest of the disk. Like stuff that hasn't formed into planets yet. Oh. Don't, it's don't leftover bits yeah. floating around. We'll get to that. Don't you worry. We'll get to that later in the show. So stay tuned. insistence of some wholly unqualified people that it's not the case the likelihood of anthropogenic climate change is pretty well accepted science and the effects are actually already becoming visible uh, the effect of unlocking reserves of hydrocarbons from the earth in the form of gas oil and coal and burning them has increased the greenhouse effect to the point it's measurably warming the earth um, while arguments continue about the cause of this warming, 
know, outside of science, basically. Uh, a group of scientists from around the world have collaborated to look at the other side of the equation. What are the effects of a warming planet? Now, obviously, this has been modelled before, so this is not the first It's kind of like time. the obvious question to ask, isn't it? Well, yeah, really. I mean, we can argue about what causes it and, and, and why it's happening, mm. and maybe that gets a bit political in in you know in because of the effects it would have on industry and things like that but really it's more important is well it is warming because we've measured it Mm. so what's going to happen as a result um so there's a lot of predictive models of climate change uh that are based on various scenarios but the researchers in this case didn't look forward for answers they looked back in time they jumped in their time machine no they didn't what they um (laughs) In, in a paper published in June in Nature Geoscience uh, called Paleoclimate Constraints on the Impact of 2 Degrees Celsius Anthropogenic Warming and Beyond. That's a bit of a mouthful. To so anthropogenic was... warming and beyond. <laughs> I was going to ask you to repeat the name of the paper, but I don't go I don't on. think we need to no, hear no, it no, again. No, no, no. Yeah, you, can, you can look it up on, okay. our, on our Facebook page. Um they have some observations to share. So they looked at three known periods in geological history when the climate was warmer than it is now uh, and warmer than it was in pre-industrial times, and they make some predictions based on their observations. So two of the periods they looked at were warmer due to shifts in the orbit of the Earth because the Earth's orbit is not as static as we would like to think it is. Um, and... Uh, another was due to high levels of greenhouse gases, which was a period in which the greenhouse gas levels were similar to what they actually are now. So this is some um, 60 to 100 million years ago that it was a lot warmer. So dinosaur times. Pretty much. Um, So the first thing they predict is somewhat good news. They think that it's very unlikely that runaway greenhouse gases will be an issue. So they, they, they predict there'll be a maximum level of warming and beyond that, the, the climate will not continue to warm. So we're not but, going to turn into the planet Venus is what you're saying? Hopefully not. And okay. this is what they're saying. They think that's very unlikely due to the, to the feedback and biological effects on you know, responses to carbon in the atmosphere and things like that. So they think that that's not very likely as a scenario. But what is the maximum? Well, they can't say that for sure, but they they think based on these previous periods of warming that that the the temperatures will rise a little bit and they're saying probably around 2 degrees. Um, but what they're also saying is that... Uh, the two-degree warming will have a much bigger impact than what people have been predicting based on other models. Right. So this, this two degrees by... Because people already talk about... I mean, the Paris Accords about two degrees by the end of this century. Yep. So they're saying two degrees in total or just two degrees by the end of this century? Well, they're saying two degrees by the end of this century. Okay. But they're saying that even if that does stay the same... Yep then it's still going to have much bigger impacts okay. than what was predicted based on what they've seen in these... Um, Uh, geological records so based on their observations of ice cores and sediment layers and fossil records which they dated using radioactive isotopes they put together a likely model of the earth after the climate stabilizes so they're actually saying that yeah the 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 uh, greenhouse gas levels will continue to rise 
and then the climate will stabilise at a new level and it will be a different climate at the end of that. But they say that may take centuries, even if we stopped putting, or even if we stopped increasing the amount of emissions, which we are actually doing, um, even if we did that now, then the, the, the lag of it, uh, of it having an effect will be centuries out from where we are now. So the first thing uh, that they um, are predicting is that there'll be permanently melted ice caps. So the North Pole and the South Pole will be basically mostly liquid water, and there might be little tiny bits of ice on the Antarctic continent, Jeez. but most Wait, of the... Tiny bits on the Antarctic continent? Well, in the centre of the continent. So we're saying goodness. the whole Antarctic ice sheet pretty much... A lot of it, and melt. most of the Greenland ice sheet will also <gasps> be melted permanently. Um, so that means that a post-warming world, the sea levels will be about six to seven metres higher than they currently are, which means a lot of capital cities and most of the populated areas of the world, which are mostly coastal areas, yeah. will be inundated with water, more or less. I and bet the cartographers are rubbing their hands with glee. Going well, they have to redraw all the map maps. Makers, yeah. <laughs> uh, secondly, they are saying that the forests uh, will colonise north and south towards the poles as the temperatures warm enough for them to survive with no permafrost areas of tundra will naturally ve- revegetate. So there'll be trees much closer to the North Pole, particularly. Mm. Um, obviously, trees will have a lot more difficulty crossing the oceans to get to Antarctica, but, you know... Oh, I'm as, sure humans will find a way to make that easier. Li- life finds a way, life as, finds as a someone way. famously said. Um, but, you know, I mean, tree, tree seeds blow around all the time. I mean, you know, volcanic islands end up with vegetation very quickly. So yeah. it is possible that this will happen. Um, so the forests will be further or nearer to the poles as a result of the uh, climate being warmer. And thirdly, some desert areas, notably the the Sahara Desert, are likely to also be colonised by plant life uh, as rainfall patterns shift um, to deliver more water into that region and possibly into other desert regions. So on top of that, the Sahara being re-greened because it gets wetter again, forests and rainforests closer to the equator are likely to recede and be replaced by uh, savannas which are dominated by fire cycles which is similar to larger areas of Australia and Africa and South America. So basically all of the vegetation in the world is going to be affected one way or another and it won't necessarily be become extinct but it will be shifted and probably the patterns of um, succession and things like that will change as well. So there's huge effects on the natural vegetation of the world which we can only sort of extrapolate what will be the effect on agriculture and things like that clearly if these massive changes are happening to natural vegetation then where you can grow certain crops is going to shift as well um the main finding of the paper is that the kinds of effects that can be expected are already present in many of the models that people are using but they assert in the paper that the scale of these effects is massively underestimated in most of the working models They also propose that the stabilisation of the climate, even if emissions are reduced immediately, would not occur for much longer than previous estimates. So they're saying even if we stopped now, there would still be an increasing uh, temperature range for centuries after we actually stopped increasing the global greenhouse gas emissions. So... 
the effects of the current emission levels will continue according to their models for many centuries or millennia. And these changes are very likely to happen even with only a two degree Celsius temperature rise, which is what they've been aiming for in all of the accords and everything. So even if we start now, we're still looking at massive changes for centuries to come. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So this week, I want to answer what I thought was a simple question, and I think could be a simple question. Why haven't we, as a human race, gone back to the moon since the 70s? Yeah, despite the best promises of Savage Garden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why, why don't we have a settlement there? Um, and I'm not... And before, Chris, you start talking about the conspiracy theories again and, you know, possibly that we never went to the moon. Um, Why me? Definitely, well, you, definitely you, we you, did. You, uh, what's that? Definitely we did. Definitely I think, we I believe we did. we did. Yeah, I'm not disputing that. Why would you think that I'm going to be the Mr. Conspiracy? <laughs> well, oh, I think you you've got a conspiracy against me. You're pretty quick to Pretty quick to talk about it in the introduction. Anyway, um, who can tell me... Uh, the last time a person visited the moon. Was it 1975? It was roughly? 1972. 72, okay. On NASA's Apollo 17 mission. Mm. And that person's name was Eugene Cernan. Considering the first time was 1969, 1972, that was only like three years later. Yeah. Maths. Um <laughs> That's not a long period of moon exploration. Yeah. So and, only... and how many times did they go? Like five times? There was only ever 12 people that um, landed on the moon. Walked on the moon. Um, it, but it does remain one of NASA's greatest achievements. Uh, and we did all sorts of things when we were on the moon. I say us as, as the, the human race and those 12 people. We collected a lot of rocks. We took a lot of photos. I think there's a lot to do on the moon. That's pretty much you've made <laughs> you, the main you thing. You can jump we, up and down. You can jump you up can, and down quite you can, slowly. You can put up flags. You can pretend to play golf. You yeah. Can, <laughs> You can drive around in a lunar rover. Yeah. yeah. You perform experiments. Yeah. Yep. Um, but what everyone did do is they came home. And so for 45 years now, or a bit over 45 years, we haven't been back. Um, and by all accounts, there are a lot of reasons to have a presence on the moon. Researchers and entrepreneurs think a crude base on the moon would and could evolve into a fuel depot for our deep space missions uh, possibly lead to the creation of space telescopes, uh, a way to see into the universe um, better, allow us to try out technologies to make it easier to live on different worlds such as Mars. So, you know, different environments to Earth where we can test out our technologies. Um, and, of course, solve those scientific mysteries about Earth and the Moon's creations, which creation which we're all dying to know about not to mention the tourism factor of having you know sending people to the moon on holiday just like the jetsons so they so they can pretend to play golf and drive around in see i'm guessing rovers i'm guessing if we haven't been to the moon for like what 36 years or whatever like that or 30 more than that i can't do the math 45 45 years thank you if you haven't been to the moon for like 45 years yeah then um it's probably difficult and the idea of going up there for a weekend is going to be really quite problematic. Well, I don't I don't know if it is that difficult. I mean, 
okay, I'm no astronaut. <laughs> like you, know, you, you can't do it yourself. I'm not going to do no it rocket myself. Scientist. <laughs> but you know, we didn't have computers back then um, when we sent people up to the moon, and we do now. Oh, we so did. We did have computers, but they were people. They were people. Yeah. of course. Yes, they were an incredible bunch of people. Um, but what a lot of people say is one of the main reasons why we're not on the moon is it's a cost thing, you know, it's too expensive. Um, obviously getting a mission with people uh, onto the moon is an expensive thing. For some context, at the moment, the NASA annual budget is about $19.5 billion, which may seem like a lot, but that goes across all NASA projects. So things like... Um, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the Hubble replacement, um, the giant rocket project called Space Launch System, um, missions to the sun, Jupiter, Mars, asteroid belts, all of those things so have to be... So go to the be, sun but not the moon. All those things have to be taken into account yeah. in that $19.5 billion. Yeah. And how are they going to pay for Space Force? And how are they going to pay... Well, interesting you talk about Space Force. Interesting you talk about Space Force. Um so Trump keeps trumpeting on about this um, Space Force trip to the moon um, and it's going to cost a lot more than I think he has budgeted for, somewhere in the vicinity of $13 billion, sorry, $133 billion over that, 13 years. Mexico's going to pay for it. <laughs> the moon people are going to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, which brings me to my next point, the politics of um, – of going to the moon and creating a mission to a manned mission to the moon again. Um, the political cycle is only, you know, three or four years long, or if mm. you get two presidencies, that's only eight years long. I think um, pretty much every president of the last 20 years or so has promised to go back to the moon or to go to Mars or something like that. Yeah, but I mean, they're only going to commit to the amount of time yeah, that they exactly. can foreseeably be in office. Um, and Trump has announced he wants astronauts in the vicinity of the moon. Um, not a lot of commitment there. Vicinity of the moon by 2023, which is not by coincidence the same time that he's. Let's hope he doesn't have a second term. But um, it, it does. It just seems when his like he term doesn't would, would finish. He doesn't really seem to understand how far away the moon actually is when he says, "Oh, we're going to have astronauts in the vicinity of the moon." It's like, do you think it's? Do you think it's just? <laughs> Just outside of, yeah. of you know the atmosphere or something because it's a lot further away than I think he he understands that it is. Um, what I didn't know though was that um, this happens all the time with space travel. Like one president will announce you know a big pro big space mission and then and then all of these funds will will go to that mission and then over time when the next president comes in they'll they'll cut it so in 2004 the bush administration um, tasked NASA with coming up with a way to replace the space shuttle um, and they came up with something called the Constellation Program to land astronauts on the moon using a rocket called Ares and a spaceship called Orion. So they spent over $9 billion over five years designing, building, testing um, but then President Obama took office and there was a new report released about NASA's inability to estimate the cost of this Constellation um, mission. So Obama scrapped the program and signed off on a different program called the Space Launch System um, instead. And now Trump's messing with the Space Launch System. 
changing changing the goalposts on a different mission. So, so they're never going to get anywhere if they keep doing this. Is what you're saying? They're never going to get anywhere if they keep doing this. Exactly. Well, they currently they currently have no U.S. space capable launch vehicles. The government owns no, no. vehicles capable of getting people into space. Since the, the space shuttle yeah. went debunked, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, and the last reason uh, that we haven't gone back is um, actually a surprising one, maybe. It, the, the moon's actually quite a hard place to exist. So having a colony on the moon um, is, a, is a very difficult um, concept. It's littered with craters and boulders that threaten safe landing. So in the lead up to the first moon landing in 1969 – the US government spent what would be billions of dollars today um, developing satellites and mapping the surface of the moon to help um, people, to, to help their scouters um, find landing sites for the Apollo. So, but apparently a bigger worry is the moon dust. Um, apparently moon dust, it gets everywhere. It's like talcum powder uh, and it covers the surface of the moon. There are a lot of issues with dust in the Apollo missions. Um, and if we were to return there for any length of time and have a more permanent presence, they'd need to figure out how to deal with the dust on a day-to-day basis. You just spray it with glue before you land. It, just, it all <laughs> sticks it all together. And that, not to mention the intense sun rays that will, like, burn you, followed by um, the lack of uh, the lack of sun for days and days that will freeze you. Um, yeah, yeah, because a day is a day is like fourteen, 14 days. days. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the the daylight period is fourteen. Yeah, days. that's yeah, right. Yeah. Um, what about the lack of air? And the lack of air, yeah. indeed, yeah. and the lack of air. Yeah. So there are there are, there are some issues with setting up a moon base, um, but you know these these are the challenges that we face if we are realistically going to be exploring deep space. Um, and looking forward is is strange to think that it wouldn't won't be NASA leading the way in research and development, um, but there have been there are these, you know, space crazed billionaires out there that are pumping a lot of money into, um, into space research. Elon Musk and his SpaceX and um, Jeff Bezos with his Blue Origin, um, yeah. So maybe our next step into space is going to be sponsored by Amazon. Yes, you listen to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and I am going back into outer space. I'm going further than Claire, even way further enough to go. Way further. Way further. How many light years further are you going? Quite a few. Quite a few. What what planet are you going in the vicinity of? It's (laughs) PDS seventy B. If you want to know, Uh, doesn't have the same ring, does it? Planet X. Yeah. 
But look, okay, so this is this is a an exoplanet. It's a planet around another star. Now, I just want to say that, like, when we're studying the way the solar system formed, we're trying to understand the way that our solar system formed and, and things that happened. It's very difficult because you only have this one solar system to look at, and you go, well, we make calculations and that sort of stuff. What you need to say, have is other examples. What I'm saying is astronomy is one of those things where it's very difficult to do replicating experiments. You can't just go, you know... You can't just go in a laboratory and redo the Earth. Sure. So yeah. what you need to do is you need to look out into space and find similar things and go, aha, that's that's how it works. And it's, this is happening now. We have the technology to look really deeply and at really far away things using telescopes, obviously, hence the name, telescope. Um, and we have recently seen um, a planets in the, in, the, in the process of being formed. A baby planet. Ba- well, baby, a very big baby, as it would turn out. When you say in the process of being formed, like, what what do you mean? Well, okay, so how are planets formed? Is that what the question you're asking? Yeah. Or, yeah, okay, that's a fair question. All right. The currently accepted idea of how planets are formed is that, uh, well, like, you know, a star system, like a solar system forms out of this uh, kind of cloud of gas and dust and it collapses under its own gravity and at the center of that is where it's densest and that's where you get the star it ignites it goes poof, turns on with nuclear fusion and that kind of thing like it's hot enough great under gravity we collapsing. spare no expense of um sound effects and lost in science yeah well the visuals were amazing though you'll agree <laughs> um the rest of the the gas and dust that does, doesn't fall in the star kind of keeps rotating around and it becomes like a disc around around the, the so is that star. is that sort of like when you see a planet like Saturn with the ring around it. Is that kind of what it looks like? A little bit. It is very thin, but that, uh, that's, it's a lot neater. The Saturn planet, Saturn system is a lot neater mm. and I suppose narrower than this. Right. Um, this is, but it's all quite thin. And what happens is that the, um, the, the larger lumps in this disk around the, the star, they will start to, they'll bump into each other, they'll attract each other under gravity and you'll get things called planetesimals, which are the small kind of <laughs> protoplanets. Uh, decimals of the planetary That's world. That's right. And they will gradually um, accrete more, uh, more mass to them. Um, apparently closer to the sun, to the actual star, like um, the stars give off solar wind, so they have like an outpouring of, of charged particles and things. And that tends to blow away some of the lighter material uh, from close to it. And this is why you get rocky planets like the Earth as are forming closer to the star. But further out, uh, you can get more kind of ice and more sort of lighter elements that then can, um, yeah, form the larger gas giants, e.g. Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune and Uranus. A lot of gas there. So that's basically the accepted theory of, of how it works. Um, there have been some counter theories, um, but that is like, that's the main idea. And it's, it's really great that now we have seen something that looks like what we expected and it is a good indication. So what this has actually been seen is uh, it is a disk around the star um, PDS-70, which is in the constellation of Centaurus. Um, it's about 370 light years from Earth. It's believed to be about... 82% the sun's mass, this particular star. So it's a similar size, slightly smaller than the sun. Um, but it's also believed to be only 10 million years old, whereas our sun is about 4.5 billion years old. So this is like much, 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 much younger than our sun, obviously. It's a very wow. new star in the, so do the cosmic scheme. 
does does that does that put uh put any questions on how early the planets in our solar system formed or is or are they just thinking that the planets formed around about the same time as the sun formed here yeah well? it's it's look um that's an absolutely good question i can't really answer that um the things i've read have seemed to inst- estimate that a planet may take about um you know three million years or so to to form to really start to form um and of course it accelerates once it's once it's um got that you know that initial mass it then it's able to attract more and more stuff to it so maybe this planet has been around for a few million years but it wouldn't have been there right right from the the birth of the star it takes a while for a planet to form and the fact that so what what you can see in the pictures, and I would encourage you to look these up if you haven't seen them already. You basically can see they saw this disc, and then they examined the disc a lot closer, and they saw this bright spot in it. And they've used this um, very powerful instrument. It's called uh, Sphere, which stands for spectropolarimet- Spectropolarimetric High Contrast Exoplanet Research. Um, it is an instrument attached to one of the very large telescope instruments in Chile's Atacama Desert. These are, as it name suggests, very large telescopes. They've got mirrors to focus the light that are about 8.2 metres across. And they use wow. and they use adaptive optics. Um, adaptive optics basically allows you to um, adjust their focus to, ac- to account for the, um, the distortions from the Earth's atmosphere. So, you know, you're familiar with like the Hubble Space Telescope, that sort of thing, or the James Webb space telescope which are able to see well because they're outside the earth's atmosphere well this is a way of getting rid of some of the effect of the mm, earth's atmosphere okay. um by yeah adjusting the focus to adjust out the um the wobble easier than setting a telescope up on the moon it's easier in some ways it has come <laughs> with its own challenge but it basically is uh, shows how much technology is advanced we're able to do this sort of thing now and the fact that we can see this kind of stuff so far away is pretty amazing. Yeah, so they saw this little bright spot in in it, and they also this um the pictures are quite clear that the planet has cleared a path around the star. So remember, this mm. is one of the definitions. Famously, Pluto got kicked out of the Planet Club because it hadn't cleared its orbit. This planet has done a good job. It's got a nice little kind of bit where it's it's carved out, but there is a lot of disk left there, and so I suppose you could expect that other planets will form. So this is the largest planet. It's believed to be. Several times the mass of Jupiter, the oldest sibling, yeah, and of the planets, and like we, you know, the current theories of how our solar system formed is that Jupiter of the, the gas giants, Jupiter formed first, and then the other ones formed after that. Um, so yeah, it's kind of again, it can, confirms with our theories of of how things form, but there is also a bit of um, chicken and egg here in that. So what they've seen essentially is this dot around this star. Um, because they had to put, you know, filter out the light of the, the star. They had to like put a big black spot in front of where the star is so they could see this planet. Um, but understanding how it all works, that involves putting the observations into models of how we believe um, solar systems form. So you're kind of using this to confirm your models, but you're also using the models to understand what you're seeing. So the models are basically what's saying it's about a few times the mass of Jupiter um, and estimating the age of it, estimating, yeah, there's temperature, surface temperature around a thousand degrees Celsius is what they're saying. Um, so some of this stuff is, is yeah, from the models. But um, yeah, some things you can't tell. You can see how far it is from the from the star. It's about the distance um, uh, that Uranus is from the sun, um, and it is got an orbit of about 120 years, I think. 
So, yeah, some things we can we can work out. But, um, yeah, some of the detail is a bit less clear. They do believe that it might have its own little disk around it, which would then would form moons around this star eventually, but and this planet eventually. But, again, that's more from the calculations. They can't actually see that. That's more like what you would expect to have at this point. So there is still a lot to be worked out, obviously, is what I'm saying. But it is, yeah, it's a great way to see... Uh, a young planet around a young star being formed and to get some extra data that we can't get just from looking at our own solar system. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.